Good morning, beloved. Oh, welcome back. I mean, it's been like, what, a few years since we were right here, right? That's good. Uh, full circle. Uh, a little different. I like it. I like the changes they've made around here. It's nice. Uh, all right, so it's like a gift. But speaking of gifts, um, have you ever had the experience of giving someone a gift and someone else gave that same person a gift and that person receiving the gift clearly liked the gift that the other person gave better than the gift that you gave? Yeah, it creates a little bit of an awkward situation. Um, yeah, it's, it gets rough. Um, but listen, here's the thing. There, this is real history. These two brothers, and like brothers, they're rivals. Um, they both had a gift to give to this, this person that they really highly regarded. And they, they bring their gift to this person. And this person has a much higher regard for one of their gift than the other. And you, you know that feeling. And so the brother whose gift is not regarded highly becomes furious. Like, I'll never measure up to my brother. And he's just, he's upset. And it's like, you know, those thoughts that just become all-consuming. He can't let go of it. And so he takes his brother outside and they're alone. You know, look around, nobody's watching. And that fury inside of him just becomes outright rage. And it spills over to him attacking his brother. And in the fear, that, like the, the passion of the moment, seeing red, he kills his brother. Like actually takes his life. And you know, brothers fight all the time. But like this goes that far that the brother dies. And the brother standing over the dead body watches as the life and blood pour out of his brother and are soaked up into the ground. And I've got to wonder, like, what, what, was that, what was the thought in his head? What was the feeling like? The moment that as he watches the life leave his brother, he turns and walks away from his brother. And the gift getter that didn't have regard for his gift finds him sometime later. Hey, where's your brother? You know, he famously responds. As that same rage wells up again. Am I my brother's keeper? And we all know the story of Cain and Abel. How like the very first nuclear family that we all would trace our ancestry back to. The very first nuclear family of humanity. And one brother kills another brother. There's that competitive edge, that rivalry, flying off the handle again and again. And it shows up again and again because this tendency continues to reverberate through every subsequent generation. I gotta be honest with you, just personally, confessing my sin, I have struggled a lot lately with bitterness. It just seems like, and I have first world problems totally, but like, it's like one thing after another just keeps going wrong. And it's like, when is this gonna stop? <laughs> when is it gonna stop? And, and I start to default to this position of as I hear other people complain about their problems, and then it becomes this kind of, like, if they only knew. And why, why do I do that? And inside of me, it just starts to grow as this bitterness takes root in my heart and starts to taint everything that I see. I think, why is it like that? One thing after another. It's almost like in that story of Cain and Abel, before Cain murders Abel, God showed up to him. Do you remember what he said? God showed up to him. He said, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Sin is crouching. 
He's using the language that you would use for an animal. A sin is like an animal. You better get control over it, Cain, because if you don't get control over it, it's going to consume you. It's ready to pounce like an animal. And so are you going to feed it? The more you feed that bitterness, Kevin, the more that bitterness grows and the greater its appetite becomes that it wants more and more. And suddenly it's consuming me because its desire is for you. Isn't that wild? To think sin's desire is not for you to misbehave. Sin's desire is for you. It wants to consume you. And you think about the way that we engage in these things relationally, but in every aspect, but like, Who's the last person that you became just a little bit envious of? You saw the way that their relationship with someone else started to flourish and you feel that jealousy welling up. You think, ah. Oh. And what's it doing? It's consuming you. It's consuming us. It wants to consume us. And so you must rule over it. Remember the, the cultural mandate. Take dominion, subdue the earth that you are actually supposed to rule over the animals and yet now there's this thing, namely sin, that acts like an animal trying to rule over you and God's saying, you gotta flip it back around. You better rule over it because it will consume you. It will consume you. What's gonna satisfy it? Only you. That's the very nature of this bitterness that's in me. It's not content to stay at a designated level. It wants to consume all of me. And so the Lord says, fight it. But it begs the question, how much of our lives like Cain, like Kevin, how much of our lives are marked by just constant comparison and conflict? As you think about your life, navigating relationships and the way you walk into a room and size it up and say, do I belong here? The way that we see our kind of pecking order at work or on the team or in our class or wherever we find ourselves, how much of our life, how much of our strife is marked by just constant comparison and conflict? And oh, to just be at peace with who we are, to be at peace with others. And yet our tendency is to just so quickly think that the only solutions available to us, like Cain, is to either cut down or cut off others. Surely there's more. Surely there is more. And so we are in the midst of a series uh, Pastor Tim launched off for us last week in Philemon. Everybody say it with me, class. Philemon. Look at you. Philemon. I know if you say it differently, that's okay. No one's going to make fun of you, but we're going to all pretend to be Greek scholars here. Philemon. Philemon. All right, so Philemon chapter one, because there's only one chapter. If you will turn in your copy of scripture there, it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, Philemon chapter one, we're going to start with verse one. Though Pastor Tim took us through part of this last week. Philemon chapter one, verse one. It says this. Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Athia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Wow. We're going to make it through the greeting today. You know how this goes. But let's establish some context for this. This is a very short letter that's included in the scriptures. Um, it, is, it is canon. This is the very word of God, inspired, breathed out by God, written by a man whose personality is certainly involved. And yet, it is the word of God to us. And so some context for this letter. The author, Paul, 
He names himself right off the get-go. This is Paul. Um, Also, Timothy is mentioned, likely just meaning that Timothy was present with Paul at this point, Um, but the use of the first-person pronoun throughout the rest of this letter indicates Paul is the one who's writing this. So Timothy is there with him, but Paul is writing this as the author, and he's imprisoned. He's imprisoned because he's an apostle to the Gentiles, and a lot of the Jews did not like that. Um, And so uh, you know the story, hopefully, from the book of Acts. Um, Paul is imprisoned, and he appeals to Caesar, and so he's now in Roman imprisonment. So we're thinking Roman Empire about 2,000 years ago. Paul is an apostle sent by Jesus. He's going to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And yet he has been arrested. He's imprisoned and he's awaiting trial. And he's writing as a prisoner, but he calls himself not a prisoner of Rome, not a prisoner of the Jews, but a prisoner of Christ. And you see the beauty of that. Pastor Tim walked us through the beauty of the freedom of prison. The freedom is not just throw off all restraint. It's actually living within the right restraint and seeing the freedom of that. And so Paul, chained up to a Roman guard, nothing. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And that is actual freedom. And so that's our author. This is Paul. And then the recipient. Who's the audience? Who's receiving this letter? It's namely to Philemon. Philemon is receiving this. Um, There's a nod to others and also to the house church that he hosted. Um, So there's um, these two individuals are named Aphia and Archibus. They are thought, some scholars think that's likely his family or people who lived in his home, um, but then also the, the church that meets in his home. And so that tells us two things. One, if he has the house that can contain a church, um, even if it's a very small church, he's a man of wealth. He's a man of means. He has wealth. And also, the fact that we learn in this letter, he has a slave. Um, he owned another individual. Um, it looked a bit different than chattel slavery as we think of in American history, um, but still, this means this man has means. He is financially lucrative. He has some wealth. And so author Paul, recipient Philemon, and the occasioner, the reason for the writing, um, Onesimus is a runaway slave. And he was with Paul and apparently became very dear to Paul. He converted to the faith under Paul's discipleship. And so Paul has invested a lot in Onesimus, and now Paul, as a literal prisoner, is being served well by Onesimus. But Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, his master, who he ran away from. And Paul is telling Onesimus to go back to his master. But Paul wanted him to be received back in a different way, not as a slave. And so this is going to be done beautifully throughout this short letter, so bear with me. I, I hope that you can dive into this and see the, the great strategic beauty of this letter, making it worthy not just of Philemon, that individual, or even his house church, but for all of the church to now receive this and to, to be blessed by it as this is part of the word of God. And so here is the start of this masterful plea. We're going to read the first two verses again. Um, I want you to listen to what he calls individuals. What does he call the individuals in just this greeting alone? So verse one again, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archibus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Timothy is called our brother. So writing to Philemon, if I were writing to you and I referenced someone else and called that person our brother, do you see the connection? And I reference someone else and call her our sister. What is this language of brother and sister? Timothy is our brother. Aphia is our sister. Meaning Paul saw Philemon too as a brother. Paul is setting the stage for his request of Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. 
This is the way that commentator F.F. Bruce says it. He says, so the letter to Philemon suggests that perhaps Onesimus and his master were temporarily separated in order that they might be reunited and belong to each other forever, no longer as slave and master, but as loving brothers in Christ. A brother. To view others as family. Because of the gospel. To view others as family. And how do we become family? How do you step into the family of God? How did I step into the family of God? It wasn't natural birth. In fact, my, my natural birth had me dead in sin, the enemy of God, in opposition to God and his family. But I've been brought into the family of God the same way that any of us are brought into the family of God, adopted in. I'm adopted into the family of God. And so adoption and the Roman Empire, so think in this context because we, we have to read it in context. To be adopted in the Roman Empire meant so much. Um, the same kind of beauty that we see today and the, the call on so many of us to foster and adopt, to care for the orphans, to care for those who are vulnerable, the least of these among us. But in the Roman Empire, and this was often done to help continue uh, a family line, if they couldn't have their own children, they could, you could bring in children. Um, but the beauty of this is that once you were adopted, a child would assume the name, status, and legal rights of the adoptive family. You are truly part of the family. The same status, the same name, the legal rights of anyone in that adoptive family. You become a full member of that family, including being eligible for an inheritance, for citizenship. All the other privileges that come with being naturally born are now given to you in this adoption. What beauty is that? Any debts that are owed by a child once adopted are assumed by that father. A kid can't pay for anything that stands against him. But this dad steps in and says, put my name on him. And all of what you owed, I've got it. Oh, there's such a beautiful picture because that's the picture of the gospel. Again, that is how we come into the family of God that we are adopted in, that God says, put my name on him. He is mine and he has an inheritance in heaven that is unperishing, undefiled, kept for him, that forever the immeasurable riches of kindness are ours in Christ Jesus. That God says, you're mine. And how do we come in? He says, the debt that you owed, I'll take it on myself. That he paid the debt that you and I cannot pay the sin, the record of debt that stood against us, that there are real consequences for rebelling against God. He is holy, he is just, and his justice must be met. And yet he is gracious and he's loving and he says, I'll meet them myself. You can't pay this, but I can. And so Jesus, the son of God, comes and lives a sinless life. And then he dies the death that you and I deserve took our place on a cross and he gave us his righteousness, his name, now his blood covering us, washing us. And so we are presented to the Father as Jesus the Son is, his beloved. That Jesus, when he was baptized, the Father screams out from heaven. Some people think it's thundering, but he screams out, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And now that is what he screams over us because Jesus is how we have become part of this family through the blood of Jesus. And so we respond to this gospel, this good news that we're adopted into the family by faith, by faith in Jesus, what he has done, that he has brought us in. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. He says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Get this. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself 
according to the good pleasure of his will. I just want to pause there. Can you believe that? Not just that you were adopted into the family of God because Jesus died in your place and then rose again victorious over death so that that power that raised him from the dead is now in us, sealing us, the spirit of God sealing us for the day of promise, the day of redemption that is to come. Not just that he made that a reality, but how did he do it? Joyfully. The good pleasure of his will. That he wanted us. He wanted to do this for us. In love, he came. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. In love. Oh, what what a mystery that God would love us. Like, what is in me that makes me lovely? Only the fact that God makes me so. This is grace. It's not something that we could ever earn or deserve. It is what God has given a great cost to himself that he adopts us in. He brings us into the family of God through his son, Jesus. And he decided to do this before any of this world was ever even brought about. This was the plan of beauty. This is a gospel that comes by grace through faith and it brings us to peace with God. A peace. The grace we could not earn, and so we don't measure up. And the constant game of compare and contrast, we don't measure up. But there's a God who in grace says, I love you. And it brings us to peace. So no more conflict, no more fighting to be at peace with God, with Yahweh. Lord of lords, King of kings, we're at peace with God. Grace and peace are such a contrast to comparison and conflict. Grace and peace are so different than comparison and contrast. So uh, I'm going to show you a diagram here, so bear with me. Um, so if you think of this, like the gospel and a paradigm here. So we were born in sin, dead in our iniquity. And so we were like zombies, dead men walking. And then we have this encounter where by grace through faith, we come alive and we live now for the glory of God, alive in him. And so once we were dead, Christ died for us, brought us to life, and we live now by grace through faith, alive with him forevermore. And so our position with God, um, kind of the, the, we can't make an image for God, but the triangle, like the Trinity. And so, and theologians, world, this is what we do just uh, very quickly. So we have God up there. And so even if we were trying to ascend, like climb the mountain, we hear that in our pluralistic, relativistic age, like all these religions, just different sides of the mountain, but you're all going to the same point. God's up there. You just find your different path. That's nonsense. The law of non-contradiction says that cannot be so. But here's the thing. Even if you made it to the top of the mountain, do you notice that God is not actually at the top of the mountain? He's above it. He's transcendent overall. There is no way that we could ever earn our way to God, but he comes to us. We have a position with him through grace that God would condescend, meaning that he would step down and in, a transcendent God being eminent, coming to us, and he does that in grace. And so our position with God is entirely by grace, and our peace with God is entirely by grace, that grace and peace has come to us. God has brought that to us, and now we live in light of that. And so grace and peace secures our position with God, but then it also pushes us in life with God. And so we have to see that because so often we think that grace and peace is this beautiful soteriological thing, which is a really fancy way of saying salvation thing. That grace and peace secured my get out of hell card. No, 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 no. It did so much more than that. 
The grace and peace that saved us is now sustaining us. It's empowering us. It's pushing us forward in life and godliness to conform to the image of Jesus, to walk in holiness and to live out and follow in these commands that he's given us because he prepared good works for us, his masterpiece to walk in. So grace and peace comes to us, securing our position, but then it pushes us. And so what that means is not just our position, it's a push. It's how God relates to us and also how he empowers us. Grace and peace, again, contrasted with comparison and conflict. That we live, we come to life in grace and peace. We live in grace and peace. It doesn't just stop. And this is why, read verse three of Philemon one. This is why Paul highlights this in verse three in his greeting. Remember your family, remember your family, start off your family. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you do not graduate from grace, as Paul trips us. We stay in it. That is Romans 5, Paul says that we stand in grace. It's where we reside. We're in the grace of God. And so, we live in and by the grace and peace that brought us into this family. It is how we will continue to prevail. And do you know what this grace and peace or this gospel does to us? Do you know what it does when you live in grace and peace? It shifts our hearts. It shifts our hearts and the way that we engage with others. It shifts the way that we see others. It shifts the way that we view the things that can, for me, create bitterness, the things that can create envy or jealousy, the things that can create all the things that lead to things like a dead brother whose blood is soaking into the earth. It changes us. It changes the way we see things because it shifts our hearts from I'm not my brother's keeper to my brother is a keeper. We have to shift in light of the gospel from I'm not my brother's keeper no, my brother is a keeper. Stay with me. Be loved. Know that you are loved because we live in grace and peace. We came to life by it and now we live in it. Grace and peace must prevail. And that is what Paul is beautifully starting in just his greeting to do to the heart of Philemon. Say, hey, remember, that's your brother. You remember, you only came into this family by grace and peace and that grace and peace is going to continue in your life to carry you to the end. So what would it look like to receive him back in grace and peace? The only thing that's sustaining you. Now, I know there are some of you here that are just exploring who Jesus is. And I'm so glad that you are with us. And I want you to know that this is a safe place for you. And this will be a church that remains a safe place for you to ask hard questions and explore. And I want you to know there is no one more compelling. There is no one more radical. There is no one worth your life like Jesus Christ. That he is more beautiful, more majestic. He is more glorious than I could ever describe to you. He is worth everything. I want to invite you today to consider him. And what he has done in dying on the cross and then rising back to life is saying, you too can be adopted into this family. So would you step into it? Would you put your faith in him? Trust him for salvation because you can't climb the mountain. And even if you could, you would realize it's still not high enough. But there's a God who has come to us. His name is Jesus to save us, to show us that his posture towards us is grace. His position with us is not peace. So we live in that. And maybe you're just struggling to believe that. 
because of some decisions you've made as a follower of Jesus? Are you just in a season of doubt? I get it. I want to ask, would you reconsider this? And will you believe this good news? That we're brought into a family, the family of God, and we have nothing to pay to get in. But he joyfully brings us in at his own expense. And now followers of Jesus, the night before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, uh, he gave a speech that's quite famous. But at the end of the speech, he's, he's calling for a, a form of brotherly love. And I love this final statement. He said, let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. Comparison and conflict contrasted with grace and peace as we see the vertical love of God for us overflow horizontally to love for each other, that we're family, brother and sister, and we live by that grace and peace. Dangerous unselfishness. What would the world do if they saw us live with that kind of radical generosity? a kind of radical grace and peace that would mark not just our relationship with God, but with each other, with everyone we come in contact with. Let's go advance the kingdom of God in that kind of a love, a dangerous unselfishness, because apathy is not an option in the way of Jesus. Um, there's a, a letter in the Revelation where Jesus actually uses the words, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Why? because you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. If you were hot, nice hot warming drink. If you were cold, so good, Florida heat. But lukewarm, froze. Apathy is not an option in the way of Jesus. We must care. We must care about our brothers. So consider the meaning of Lord. Our confession is that Jesus is Lord. If he is Lord, then he is Lord. That means he is in charge. He is the master of our lives. We must obey him. And he calls us to be peacemakers. We must obey. We must care because we are our brother's keeper and our brother is a keeper. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter. Uh, Spirit, that you would inspire Paul to write these words. Jesus, that you would do such a wondrous work that you would change the hearts of men like them and us. That you would bring peace for us um, by grace. So God, we, we give you the praise. We give you all the glory. We thank you because you are mighty to save. And so I ask, Spirit, that you would convict us of sin, that you would bring about faith and salvation today. And so we want to respond to you in worship. Uh, we love you. And we give you our lives. Help us to love in the way that Paul is calling Philemon to. To see everyone as brothers and sisters in this family that we did not deserve to be in, but we get to joyfully be a part of because of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.